Good morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. Good morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. Have you ever considered what a simple greeting just like this, or like many of the others that you do every day, uh, is actually communicating? You're meeting someone, maybe for the first time, and you're giving that person your name, and maybe a profession. Uh, you're, you're giving critical, commu- critical information about yourself that will help this person to interact with you on a deeper level. Your surname is information about your parents, maybe your heritage, about your family. Maybe you have some mutual connections that you were unaware of until you shared this information with someone. And this is what we're going to hear today. Jesus is going to be introducing himself. And he will start by providing critical information for us on how we are going to interact with him over the course of the remainder of the book of Luke. Over the past several weeks, reading in Luke 1 and 2, there have been many people who have made assertions about the identity of Jesus. This question, who is Jesus, is screaming loud in our ears. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Elizabeth said to Mary, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Another angel announced to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. A devout man, Simeon, said that Jesus would be a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And lastly, a prophetess, Anna, spoke to all who would listen about the redemption of Jerusalem coming through this baby. And today we pick up the story that's 12 years later, and Jesus is now going to introduce himself. We're going to hear from his own lips who he says that he is. We'll be reading Luke 2, 41 through 52, which is on page 808 if you picked up one of the church Bibles there in the lobby. And we're going to get a glimpse of what this redemption looks like. This salvation. How is Jesus going to accomplish this? And it's both far more mundane and simultaneously spectacular than we could ever imagine. So let's start by reading Luke 2, 41 through 45, and we'll see a scene which sort of sets up this question, who is Jesus? Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. To me, this seems like a bit of a strange way to pick up the story, right? A story of a routine trip to celebrate the annual festival of Passover, 
with a tense episode of a missing child. This seems like a major contrast of the momentous predictions that we read about last week in verse 34, where Simeon was blessing the infant Jesus. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. But here we are, 12 years later, and things look pretty normal. But we do get two important insights into Jesus and his family. One is that Jesus' parents are faithfully devout. And two, Jesus is already not following expectations. We see in verse 41 and 42 that Jesus' parents are devout. They went up to celebrate this feast every year for 12 years. It was their custom. And Mary and Joseph seem to be doing everything in their power to follow the law and to raise Jesus into this destiny that they've been expecting given by the word of Gabriel. But we also see in verses 43 and 44 that Jesus doesn't do what they're expecting him to do. After the feast, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Remember that Jesus is 12 years old here, which in Jewish, Jewish custom is right on the verge of adulthood. At age 13, Jesus would be formally recognized as an adult and would take on the responsibility of the law. So Jesus at 12 would be viewed as maybe the equivalent um, of maybe 17 in our culture. He's almost an adult, but not quite. But he's certainly old enough to begin looking like the person that everyone is expecting him to look like. That all of these people have claimed that he would be. But instead, he stays behind in the capital city without a word of explanation to his parents. And this might lead us to some sort of second type of expectation. Maybe Jesus isn't the person that everyone said he was going to be. Maybe despite his parents' faithfulness, he's just a rebellious young adult, doing whatever he wants, satisfying his own whims. And this scene should set us up to be asking this question, who is Jesus really? Let's read verses 46 through 49. And hear the spectacular truth that Jesus is exactly who the angels said that he would be, the Son of God. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house
So we were left asking the question, who really is Jesus? And imagine that you're, you're returned to the biggest city in the nation to look for your basically teenage son who has wordlessly stayed behind to do who knows what. Maybe he's hurt. Maybe he's indulging in any number of things. You search for him for at least one entire day after your travel. And when you finally find him, he's in church. <laughs> and he's, he's not just in church. Even that might be expected from the son of a devout family. But verse 46 says that he's sitting among the rabbis, listening to them and asking them questions. He's discussing philosophy with the greatest minds as an equal. We know that he simply wasn't asking questions as a student because of verse 47, which says, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus is here dialoguing. Presumably he's been here for several days, respectfully dialoguing. Asking and answering questions of the wisest scriptural scholars of the capital city of the people of God. This 12-year-old boy who's not yet even been recognized as an adult. And in some cases was not even yet considered responsible for his own observation of the commandments. Is sitting as an equal among the rabbis, the teachers of the law. Who is Jesus? Well, he's certainly not what we would expect from a rebellious young man. But then why did he do what he did? Why is this whole episode even here? So it's completely understandable that his parents are astonished, as it says in verse 48, when, he, when they finally do find him. Mary is asking this same question. Mary is still in mom mode. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She sees Jesus in this moment as her lost son. But then Jesus speaks in verse 49, and this changes everything. Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And with these words, Jesus tears down the curtain of what has been expected to reveal something totally spectacular. Jesus claims to be the son of God. From his own lips, he confirms Everything that was spoken about him by Gabriel and Simeon and Anna. This is like the moment when all of the lights come on in your house and your friends jump out from behind your couch yelling, surprise! And you realize that contrary to what you've been believing all day, your birthday wasn't completely forgotten and your friends actually do care about you. Everything that you thought you knew about what was happening here has to be reevaluated. These are chronologically the earliest recorded words that we have from Jesus. 
And Jesus uses them as an introduction to identify himself. The first words of Jesus, the incarnate word of God, were to identify himself as son. And not son of Mary, but son of Yahweh, the almighty God. He calls the temple of Yahweh his father's house. The father of the nation of Israel was Abraham. The whole nation identifies Abraham as their father. But the father of Jesus is Yahweh. What an absolutely revolutionary statement that Jesus is not Mary's lost son. He is the son of the most high God. So where else would he be but in his father's house? And the impact of this can't be overstated. And yet, to everyone's eyes, this is still clearly just an adolescent boy who has wandered away from his parents. There is a crisis here. There is a crisis of expectations. Jesus is not acting how we would expect He's not acting how we would expect either an adolescent boy, a rebellious teen to act. And he's not acting how we would expect the Messiah to act. We get here from these first recorded words, this introduction to a new kingdom, a new reality. This is God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, things don't go how we expect them to. In chapter 1, verse 32, the angel Gabriel promised Mary that the Lord God will give to Jesus the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Simeon saw in Jesus the comfort and the consolation of an entire nation of people waiting for generations For a savior who is Christ the Lord. And friends, in an earthly kingdom, the fulfillment of these predictions looks like radical political reform. Looks like the overthrow of empires. The vindication before man. And maybe an end to earthly suffering. But in the heavenly kingdom... It looks like humility, sacrifice, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says it like this. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the reality of the kingdom of God. The spectacular truth masked by the mundane. And I can think of three ways that this applies to us. First, listen to who Jesus says he is. Friends, there are so many people who are eager to tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is a good man, a wise teacher. Jesus is a nice idea for a hurting people. Maybe Jesus is an intolerant sore on our progressive society. And many, 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 many more things. But none of these capture the indescribable truth of the glory and the majesty that Jesus is. He himself came to be known so that we could know the Father. His claims about himself and his actions on this earth are clear. And in many cases, they're uncomfortable. But they are consistent with the word of God. Because he is the word of God. Read the Bible, Old Testament, New, prophecies, genealogies, epistles, gospels, psalms, and the narratives. Listen to who the Bible says Jesus is. Listen to who he says he is. And believe him. Second, please don't miss the glory of God. God's glory is often made manifest in mundane ways, in contradiction to our expectations. We expect to see the glory of God trumpeted from mountaintops. But his kingdom has always worked differently. In growth group this week, I expressed to some of the men that I feel like I don't have a lot of amazing experiences to share with others about the work of God in my life. But they encouraged me that what I have is something amazing. I have a loving family a church that supports me, a heritage of generations who love Jesus. And I am growing in the knowledge of the Lord. And these are things that seem simple and that I often may even neglect. But these are revolutionary for so many people who do not have them. And I can say with full confidence that these things are the workings of God in my life. These are nothing that I have made for myself. So don't miss the glory of God working in your life, even in mundane ways. His glory isn't dimmed because these things are simple. In fact, it's magnified because even these simple things cry out 
God's greatness because he loves and cares for me. He loves and he cares for you. The third application is to trust in the victory of God's kingdom. It can be so disheartening to hear again and again of the terrible things in this world. War, disease, abuse, death. These are things that, quite frankly, we so often don't understand. But while these things scream for our attention, and the enemy tries to use them to dishearten us or to lead us to doubt, God's kingdom is winning unexpected victory again and again and again in the hearts and the minds of his people. And we'll see at the conclusion that this is exactly what God does in the heart of Mary. As Jesus prepared the disciples for his upcoming arrest and crucifixion, he said this in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The peace of God, that is peace with God, rests on Jesus. And in him we can share in that peace with God. And then nothing that happens on this world could ever break that. This is the glimpse that Jesus is offering of his father's entire salvation plan. A spectacular plan masked by the mundane. Freedom masked by submission. Victory masked by death. This is the lens through which Jesus is inviting his family to look through. Of course Jesus stayed behind. He was doing his father's work. Of course, Jesus was equal with these great teachers. He was the greatest teacher. And of course, Jesus would one day die. He is accomplishing eternal life. And lest we forget that Jesus is operating from this different kingdom... Of the unexpected. Luke gives us one more beautiful picture. Of the obedience that Jesus displays to God's will. Finish reading the chapter verses 50 through 52. And see the son of God submit. Both to his earthly and his heavenly father. And they did not understand. The saying that he spoke. To them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So in verse 50, we find that Mary and Joseph did not understand the sayings that he spoke to them. And I think we can't be too hard on them since they didn't have the whole picture yet 
And I think it's entirely possible that they weren't meant to fully understand yet. But think about this story from Jesus' perspective. He has just made this revolutionary statement revealing his identity as the son of God. And his own family who knew him best and have even received multiple heavenly messengers didn't understand. So how does he respond? Verse 51, he was submissive to them. The incarnate word of God submitted to an earthly authority that didn't even understand what he was trying to do. Doesn't this seem crazy to us? To submit to a lower authority after just declaring the truth of his divine identity, especially one that fundamentally doesn't understand him? But of course he did. Of course. Why is this surprising to us? He is about his father's work. He is operating from a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one. His submission is first and foremost to his father. And because of this heavenly submission, the earthly submission is not only possible, but essential. Whether Mary and Joseph understand it or not, Jesus submits because of who he is. He is the son of God. And friends, that doesn't change whether Mary and Joseph understand him or whether we understand him. He is who he is. And so he obeys and he submits to the Father's will. In John 5, 19 through 20, Jesus is responding to accusations of him working on the Sabbath. And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show show him, so that you may marvel. Jesus is accomplishing the Father's will. The Father's plan for glorious salvation accomplished through humility. What appears to us to be a simple story of a runaway preteen is a glorious revelation of the identity of God. And it's marvelous. Friends, we are meant to marvel at Jesus. To marvel at his obedience. To marvel at his wisdom. To marvel at his submission. To marvel at his power, his humility, his love. And the result of all of this we see in the last verses is twofold. 
Verse 51, Mary treasured up these things, adding to her store of the knowledge of the miraculous, even when she didn't understand. And verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Both Mary and Jesus grow in wisdom and the knowledge of the Father's will because of Jesus' submission to that will. So how do these verses impact us? When you don't understand what God is doing, treasure it up in your heart. Wait and ask God to use these things to reveal himself to you. When you face the unexpected or the misunderstood, trust that God will reveal himself through those things and wait. It may take years before they make sense to you. Or you may never find an answer this side of heaven. Why is your family broken? Why is obedience to God so difficult? Why is sickness stealing life from you? Why do good people suffer or even die? Friends, we have so many questions. We don't understand so much. But those questions can draw you closer to God, not farther. Jesus has already revealed his identity. He introduced himself right here in these verses as the son of God. And who he is changes everything. The kingdom that he is bringing to this earth isn't what we expect. It is far, far greater even when we don't understand. In conclusion, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, introduces his identity as the son of the father through his submission to the father's will. And this will is for the victory of God's kingdom over sin and death. Not through dramatic revolution, but through humility and sacrifice. Which in reality are glorious instances of the work of God in our hearts. Enabling us to live and act within a different kingdom. The kingdom of God that is full of all of the fruits of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today, and we do that through your Son. God, we could not stand here uh, in your presence, Lord, uh, without your Son. God, you sent him to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. You sent him to pay the cost of our sin, and God, we repent of that sin right now, Lord we 
throw that on Jesus, and we say that we are incapable. But God, we thank you for the glorious reality that you have put within our grasp through your Son. God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus. We pray, Lord, that this week we would see your glory revealed to us in beautiful, in glorious, and in mundane ways, God. Amen.